Psalm 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, to Jedithon, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no Lavelle, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. I am mute, and I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart, and I am no more. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we go into the reading and hearing of this particular psalm this day, one that has been quoted as some as being a difficult psalm, a troubling psalm, may it be, Father, that it would not be troubling for us to learn it, to understand it, to hope into the truth that is inside of it, that we would understand what you would want us to know so that we may hold fast to you, that we would hold tightly to you, knowing that you are holding fast to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I probably reread this psalm the most of all the psalms that I've tried to prepare a sermon for, um, and I probably read more commentary on this one and it only really made it more confusing for me. I read a variety of different people, both alive and, and past, that um, have kind of a different perspective of what's going on in this particular psalm. Some are much more concerned about the depths and direction where David is going with this psalm, that, that he is even potentially crossing a line of speaking things that are of unbelief. Um, And then others saw it to be more of an instruction 
um, and even an encouragement. But the interesting thing that I found about this particular psalm is that it seems to be in response to other parts of the scripture um, that David had before him. And from reading the very title of this, it seems that he wanted it to have a significant presence amongst among the singing of God's people. It says, to the choir master, to Jedithan. And if you read about Jedithan in the scriptures, he was um, a very um, highly respected leader of music. Um, one of the Levites that, were, that had much um, of a reputation of being one of the better ones of leading people in song. And so as he sends this to Jedithan, he wants the people to be singing this song, to be holding on to this psalm in their life. And you would think that if it was something that was dangerous, that it would not be something that David would want you to be singing. And so today I want to highlight three particular things. One, where this psalm I think is coming from in other scriptures. And then also to understand that this psalm does belong to us. And of course, this is, lastly, it is a psalm of Jesus Christ. Before, I'm going to ask you um, a quiz. Uh, if you know your books of the Bible, hopefully you know the order of the books of the Bible. What particular book of the Bible, without looking down real quickly or flipping back, what is the book of the Bible that's right before the Psalms? What's that? Job. And typically, most people know that Psalms and Proverbs are together. What is the book of the Bible after Proverbs? Ecclesiastes. Now, Job and Ecclesiastes, how would you describe the tenor of both of those particular books of the Bible? Existential. Can you explain to us what existential means for some people who may not know what that word means? <laughs> you could have said, read the book of Job and <laughs> read the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> right. Would you be, if you were, um, you know how I think it was Jonathan that was telling me at uh, lunch last Sunday, uh, I think it was Jonathan or someone was talking about how when you um, want to listen to uh, if you want to be, if you're feeling good and you want to be lifted up even more, you put in some um, peppy music, right? And if you're sad, you'll put in sad music. Did, was that you that was telling me that last Sunday? No, it must have been someone else. So, um, so if you were in a cheery mo mood like today, you, you get out, you know, you roll the windows down driving in. It's a beautiful day. Um, probably most of you would rather be worshiping outside instead of in here. None of you would pay attention to anything I said if I was outside. But if you were, you know, when these kind of particular days, when it's a beautiful day and you're going to throw in a song to listen to or a scripture passage, how many of you would pick Job or Ecclesiastes today? Wouldn't be the place where you would want to go. But if you were having a difficult time, if you were struggling um, you may turn to Job, if you know about Job, if you happen to have heard about Job, um, and if you've heard anything being said of Ecclesiastes, that may be where you would go. It is my belief that Psalm 39 is heavily about the book of Job. And I believe 38 and 39 are both written in response of David doing a significant meditation 
upon the life of Job and the reading of Job. I think it's almost perfectly parallel. You'll see it in the cross-references. But, you know, a lot of times when you read cross-references of Scripture, it will maybe sometimes be a light connection um, to that particular passage or a thought that's in that verse or in that whole passage. But a lot of times it's not actually about that. And it was interesting from all the commentaries that I've read, some of them mentioned something about Job, but none of them actually said that it was really pretty much a psalm written for Job. Written for us in response to watching Job or in response of learning about how to walk with God through difficulty like the difficulties that Job had. If we were doing a Job series, um, it would be good if we had the ability to sing this particular psalm. In fact, I think there was a pastoral element to what David was doing was to actually create a psalm to help people to deal with things like Job was doing and to remain obedient. Not that Job was not, but that going through the difficulties that Job is going through and hearing some of the things he said, even Job's friends felt like that Job was crossing the line too much. And I think, obviously, I think David here is reading that and he is seeing that, or he is wanting to be like Job in faithfulness. And he is wanting us to have a way to help keep us on course in a more concise way by giving us the psalm. So first of all, I think that Psalm 39 is about Job or about the trials and the difficulties like Job. And it is a response to the life in the book of Job. Secondly, I think that this is very much for us, just as it was for the people of God then. I believe it is for us, and I believe that there are things in the epistles, or particularly in James, that really can make it very clear for us that this is a psalm that we need to be singing in our own life, and going back to, and praying this, that this is actually not crossing the line, in my opinion, but a very model prayer to how to pray and to how to respond when you are freaking out when you are losing it, when your mind and your feelings are really having a conflict of crossing that line. And I believe that this particular psalm teach us how to keep ourselves in check when we do feel the weight of doubt and fear and despair and frustration and anger. I think it's a very good psalm in helping us through that. So I want to go back just quickly and just touch on a few things in Job first before we pick apart this particular psalm piece by piece. And just remember a couple of things about Job and how he responded to distress. Most of you are very familiar probably with the book of Job, but I want to point out at least a couple of things in verse chapter one and chapter two of how Job responded to his circumstances and also do some counsel, and then to look at a little bit of Job 6 and 7, where I believe this is exactly where David is reading. And we can see perfect parallels to what's going on in Job 6 and 7, to what's going on in a little bit of 38, 
And a lot of where 39 is written is basically just cutting and pasting over Job 6 and 7. First of all, in Job chapter 1, and this is right after Job or during when Job finds out what has happened to his children. This is in chapter 1, reading from verse 18. It says, while he was drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And this is um, the messenger telling Job what has happened to his children. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, when we first start reading about Job, we might be one to think that, man, Job is just one of those kind of people that he is just stoic and disconnected emotionally. But if you read all of Job, you begin to understand that that's not true. You know that Job has some significant emotions and a significant way of responding with his emotion. But what's being said here is that the first response that Job is given when he has heard about a travesty about his children dying, that he responds in a way that does not cross the line into sin. So he, first of all, remembers the Lord. He remembers the ways of the Lord. He remembers the sovereignty of the Lord. And he responds in such a way that it is accounted to him as being remaining in faithfulness in his response. Then if you go over to chapter 2, and then if you read in verse 7 and further, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall not we receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Because Satan felt that what was going on to other people may have been not enough to really break Job. And so he asked permission from God if he could torment Job and to actually affect him physically to a point where he was truly miserable. Now, I'm sure that his wife wasn't just observing the situation stoically also or kind of like, what's wrong with him? She was also having to deal with misery herself. Her own children had also died. In a lot of cases, we might think, based upon how Job responded, that there's something wrong with Job's wife in saying this. But this account, I think, is a very natural way that we would be tempted to want to respond. And I would not say that probably, maybe even in Job's heart, he felt it. 
And, we, and I think that what we'll see in chapter 6 and 7 will highlight that he felt what his wife was saying. But he responded in faithfulness, basically telling his wife, you're basically speaking like those of women who are unbelieving and who are following ways that are not wise and are not of truth and of the reality. These are the things that we need to be able to understand that God is going to give us both these things that are good and these things that are difficult. I am certain, based upon how we see him respond later, that he surely was likely in turmoil when he said what he said. But it highlights here that he remained faithful in what he said. And we see this in the psalm that David is very concerned about how he responds to difficulty with, with his lips, about what comes out of his mouth. And he is teaching us through what he does say to the Lord that he has emotion and feeling and temptation and difficulty with his circumstances, but he's brought it to the Lord. His concern is that he does not speak in a way that is dishonorable to God when he is not feeling it, when he is feeling the weight of his despair. Just highlighting a few things in chapter 6 of Job, we see in verse 4, it says, For the arrows of the Almighty are in me, my spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. This is Job responding to his conversation with his friends. As his friends are trying to highlight why Job is experiencing the difficulties that he's having. And they are not totally removed from some component of being accurate in their theology of God. But they are crossing the line and really understanding what God is doing in their life, doing in Job's life. Job is not fully certain of what's going on in his life, but he is seeking vindication in the Lord and presenting himself before the Lord. What have I done wrong here to have these things occur? But he is showing in what he says and almost more speaking to God and speaking, even talking to himself that these arrows of the Almighty are in him, and he feels this weight. And if you look in Psalm 38, it talks specifically about the arrows of God piercing him. David is using the same concept, the same words of what it feels like to receive the discipline and the difficulty of the Lord without really having a full understanding In verse 10 of chapter 6, it says, This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not done... Sorry, I need to back up a little bit. Let's go to verse 8. It says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? 
The same spirit that Job is having here in his difficulties is that he's, he's really undone and he is overwhelmed by the pain that he is experiencing, that he wishes the Lord would just crush him. But at the same time as he is feeling this despair and just no longer loving life or seeing a hopefulness, he is also reminding himself and others and the Lord that his hope is ultimately in him. That he is using the word here, waiting on God, which is the same word that we will see in Psalm 39. In Job 6, verse 24, it says, teach me, I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does it reprove from your, what does it reprove from your reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is when you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend? But now be pleased to look at me for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. There's a seemingly posture of schizophrenia with what Job is saying here. He's going back and forth. He's, there's hopelessness, but then he's landing back in to God. And he's trying to throw forth that he is trying to stay obedient. He is trying to trust in the Lord, that his hope and his strength is in him. But he is feeling it. He is feeling despair. He is feeling moments of doubt and difficulty And it can be confusing to read because he's going back and forth. And I think that's why when we read Psalm 39, so many commentators seem to think that he's crossing the line. But I think here in Psalm 39, David is giving us an instruction to sing this in this way. An invitation, like I've mentioned earlier when we started this series, that God is inviting us to learn how to experience despair and doubt with him. But the thing that we often do when we're dealing with despair is that we tend not to want to go to him. Satan doesn't want us to go to him. He wants us to do what? He wants us to express to others hopelessness. If you think about it, what do we often do when we are dealing with difficulty? Do we first go to prayer, which some of you I'm sure have done this faithfully, but our tendency and our temptation is to wear it on our sleeve. Or we remain silent and we don't go to the Lord. And when we do speak, we often can do things that are destructive to the name of God And we can bring scorn and shame by those who are weak. In chapter 7, I'm going to go through quickly here just different things that Job was saying as he's going through this soliloquy. How you say it? Soliloquy? (laughs) Going through this solo response here in verse um, chapter 7, verse 5. It says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. 
Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. And then in verse 11, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I, a, am I the sea or a sea monster that you would guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling in death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you would make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow up my spit? If you were reading Psalm 39 or listened as we read it just a moment ago, you'll see that that is very much where David ends that particular psalm to the point when he basically is saying to the Lord, when are you going to turn away and leave me alone so that I may smile again before it's all done? I think there is no argument that as we go back through and look at Psalm 39, that he is reading Job. He is thinking about Job. And the thing that Job has in the beginning of Job and throughout Job and even in the book of James is that Job remained steadfast through all of this. It's not that God didn't respond and rebuke some of the things that Job was saying, but he remained steadfast and faithful even in the midst of saying those particular things, feeling those particular things in his despair and even in his defense. So what do we have here? In verse one, it says, I said, I will, in verse one of 39, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David is setting the context that as he went into this particular prayer, this was his mindset. And you can see that there's a parallel mindset. He desires that his ways will be guarded, that his tongue will be guarded, that he will not sin with his mouth, that he will not say something that will be used as scorn against him by those who are fools, those who do not believe, that he does not proclaim something that is wrong and dishonorable to God. But as he remains silent, he's saying that it's overwhelming him inside this despair, this frustration, the difficulty. Now, I know that we can have all kinds of different measures of that in different ways. We can have it through health problems, we see with Job that he's dealing with the trauma of losing those who he loves, and he's also dealing with difficulty in his own physical body. 
Job is very helpful for us in seeing that it's covering every area of life. It's very helpful for us in knowing in some ways that from the very beginning that God is over all of this, even though it can cause us to say why and even to get bold with God in saying, is this right what you're doing here? But never is Job or David admonished anywhere in scripture for feeling this way, for having this response experientially. But we are seeing through the instruction of Job and in the instruction of David that what we say, and especially what we say publicly and openly, have tremendous ramifications whether or not we enter into sin. Think about how he responds to his wife. His wife says, why don't you just curse God? Why don't you just say something about how God is wrong in all this or something is wrong and unjust about God and then just die. And we know from what Job is saying that he is not removed from that being somewhat of an emotion that he's experiencing. He's thinking a lot about dying in what he is saying. But he is going back and quickly making sure that whatever comes out of his mouth is consistent with the glory and the honor of God. And so David here is showing us that as he's about to teach us how he corresponded with God, he's in the same kind of mindset. He's feeling it. He's feeling it a lot. And his biggest concern is that his, whatever comes out of his mouth does not dishonor God. But what he does, and which is, the, I think, the biggest lesson here for us, is that when he is dealing with this despair, and this is, I think, maybe a thematic psalm for all of the psalms of difficulty and lament, go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. And like Job says, Job says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to your face here. This is how I'm feeling about things. God is teaching us, tell me what you're feeling. <laughs> Telling me, tell me what you think here. He's teaching us to do this as a part of our liturgy, a part of our life, that we go to him in a way and just let it all out. And to express it to him. What Satan wants us to do is to do what Job's wife was tempting him to do, which all of us are tempted to do, and all of us fail, and I know I fail continually. Probably this week, <laughs> Jennifer reminded me as I was ranting <laughs> this week, wow, <laughs> the Lord's really trying to teach you about this psalm. He wasn't teaching me in a way like, wow, look how good I am at doing what David is instructing here. Look at how good I'm doing with what Job is saying. As I was dealing with a variety of difficulties, I was just letting it come out quickly. I was letting my complaints come out openly in ways that were not just dishonoring to God, but dishonoring to other people. I did not go to the Lord first. So I come to this, you with this particular psalm, like, I've already messed up. <laughs> I've already missed the mark on fulfilling what has been told to us here in this particular psalm. But I still believe it, and I still ask the Lord to help me in it. And I will also sing along with David as he does, Lord, forgive me, <laughs> deliver me from my transgressions. 
as I continue to mess up with letting my tongue speak things that are not honorable. But look at what he prays. He says, O Lord, make me know my ends and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. The first place where David goes as he is dealing with this, there is, a, I think, a faithful response to that dread and despair of life. There, it, a lot of commentators say that he's, 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 he's getting into unbelief zone by making it seem like life is meaningless. And even some people accuse the wording in Ecclesiastes in the same way, that it's all in vain. But there is this sobering that we need to have when we are striving with difficulty of our suffering. Our first place of check is, what are you striving with? What is ultimately your hope? As David says later on in this psalm, he says, you are my hope. I am waiting on you. But is that the first place that we are really striving? Are we striving for the Lord? Are we striving for his kingdom? When we see this here, we need to understand that David is thinking about striving on holding too tightly to the things that are passing, the things that are temporary, the things that we see right after this here, it says, surely all man goes, excuse me, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The context of what he is talking about here is not the life that the Lord seeks for us to enjoy as we see that our chief end is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. What he's talking about is this turmoil for our own name, for our own kingdom, for wealth, for our own purposes, that we're storing up all of this in our life And a lot of times we think, well, no, that's not us. I'm not one of those worldly, materialistic kind of people. But we have things inside of our own, what we define as our ministries, what we define as our our Christian walk, or what we define as our faith, that is really more about us. Would not David be tempted that, you know, this is the kingdom of God that he is the king for, that everything is supposed to be about the glory of God. And David is constantly wrangling with this turmoil of gathering for himself. And so as he is dealing with this hotness in his heart, the first place he goes is to look and see if he's in check about the things that he's actually in turmoil about. That is where we need to go. Are we consistent with what we are feeling? Now, I'm not to say that we do not experience the same kind of turmoil and difficulty when we are in faithfulness. We know that that is still also the case. We know that Jesus experiences that grief and turmoil. But think about this, and this is kind of tapping into my second point, that when Jesus is talking to Peter 
And he is telling Peter and the disciples that he is going to have to face persecution and crucifixion at the hand of man. Peter is quick to say, but no. But no. Not, not you, Lord. And Jesus quickly says what? Get behind me, Satan. It wasn't because he was just really out for Peter for that moment. But he knew that he had to deal with difficulty for our sake and for the obedience to his father. But at the same time, I believe that was one of the temptations to Jesus. That he would not have to experience difficulty. That he would be able to enjoy Life, like Peter was thinking. Now, I don't think that Jesus was immersed into that as this was a sinful desire of his, but I believe it was a real temptation for Jesus. And that he saw through the words of what Peter was saying the same kind of things that Job's wife was saying. And he felt it. He felt it, but he called it it, for what it was. Satan, get behind me. And so this difficulty and despair is showing that we have these two worlds at fight. The world that is temporal, the world that is concerning our comfort versus the world that is for the kingdom of God and for his glory. God was using Job for a purpose God was using Job to bring glory to himself and for us to have as an example for all of the world to have an example of what? Of his faithfulness. Not his sadistic response to his people, but we see later on, and I will quote those in James, that this was to show his faithfulness to us. And so we must endure these things. We must understand where they're coming from. We must understand what we are being tempted by. And we must see whether or not we are falling into the context of the mankind that is striving for the turmoil of this temporal life. Or are we striving for the kingdom? And a lot of times those things are going to be pit against each other in the very midst of that turmoil. But we see here that David is being faithful in how he goes back, it says in the next verse, it says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. And then he goes from being mute in a way that is trying to keep himself from sinning to being mute because he's understanding what the Lord is is at work. Not understanding maybe specifically, but he understands that the Lord is at work. It says, I am, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. It is showing here that David understands, just as Job, though he is still not certain of all the things of particulars, he knows that it is from the Lord. That is why he is going to the Lord. That is why he is presenting his case before the Lord. That is why he is presenting his complaint to the Lord. He's not presenting his complaint in a way that brings dishonor and scorn by the fool by bringing some kind of questioning of the Lord's honor before the world. 
and he is not just emoting. We are so quick to emote in this age. We have tools in our pocket and on our desk that allow us to emote immediately how we feel about things. I am slowly through my age and through wisdom and learning not to push sin. And then if I wait a few days, I usually push delete. Because we are in a practice where we just want to get it out. And we see here through the discipline of Job and David and ultimately Jesus Christ to remain mute at times. Not completely mute where we never get to express it, but to express it in the context of faithfulness. David understands that he is being disciplined here. It says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. This is touching both into Job, into Ecclesiastes, understanding that these things, that in our sin, it says, it says when you are rebuking us for our sin, you take the things that are dear to us of this world, things that are ultimately not for ourselves, but should be used in the service of the glory of God. You take those things and they are eaten by the moth. They are passing away. This is a grace that the Lord would use his own creation to destroy those things that we hold too tightly to. When we lose those things, I was joking with Brian about how we have these plans <laughs> and God just takes those plans and, and comes up with a whole other way. We typically respond in frustration I always, almost always respond in frustration. And David is teaching us here to understand that really it is a good thing. But it doesn't mean that he's like, oh, I'm so happy he's taken away my things. I'm so happy he's messed up my plans. No, David's feeling it. He's feeling it. He's feeling, oh, you take the things that are dear and you let the moth just eat them up and consume them. You destroy these things that I strive after. What a grace it is that we have that. We know that David is going to the right place because he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. You know, the Lord will even listen to our cries and our tears of our complaints and our despair over the loss of stupid things. He understands what's going on with us. He knows what's going on with us. But he still wants us to come. You know, I, I'm not like that with my children. If my children, if they're doing something stupid and they get hurt, you know, I, I say things to them <laughs> where I'm surprised they would ever come to me about anything. Like, well, that's, that's what happens when you disobey. See, that's what happens. I was even doing that last night to Jennifer. Like, well, you don't listen to my counsel? <laughs> that's what you get. The Lord tells us, and he's instructing us here in this particular psalm, that he wants us to come to him in those things. 
It is the only safe place for us to go. Now, he will rebuke us just like he rebukes Job. And he will rebuke David often. And he will rebuke you by his word. Those things are stupid. But he wants you and he understands you when you come with your whiny complaints. He wants you to go here to him. David remembers, he says, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my father's. And then probably the most challenging verse for most commentators is this last one. It says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and I am no more. When we look at this in the context of all the other places in the Psalms and different things where it says, shine your face upon me, don't look away. It doesn't make sense unless you're thinking that this is in the contest that David's losing it just for a second. And I've even heard one pastor say he ends on a horrible note. On a a note of almost unbelief, because he's normally saying, look upon me. And I don't think that that's the context that he's talking about. I think he's going back to Job 7, when he's asking the Lord to remove some of this burden from him, that is too heavy for him. And we see this in Psalm 38, that he's just, this is just too much. I don't know if I can handle all of this. And it's okay. We're being taught here that it's okay to go to the Lord and say, I just don't know if I can handle all this discipline that you're putting upon me. I know it's from you. I know it's for your glory and for your purposes. But I'm having a rough time. I can't handle this. I'm I'm ready for it just to be over. I'm ready for it. I'm ready to just crawl up and die. That's where David is teaching us that the Lord wants us to come to him when we're like that. And because of other passages, just like when we hear in all the lectionary readings, because of the fullness of God's counsel, David is knowing, even though he doesn't know it like we know it then, he knows it now, that we can wait upon him. We can wait upon him because we can wait upon Jesus. And we can wait upon his strength. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of James here, and it may sound like a whole lot of admonition, but I want you to find it as a comfort to you because when he's talking about the judge here in James, he's talking about Jesus. And I know that James is thinking about Job too, even though he doesn't mention him but once here at the end. But in James 4 and 5, which if you're familiar with James, you're like, wow, man, this, he's, he's just coming on out as hard now. You know, here we are in our lowest point where we're ready to die, and, and then Charles wants to read James to us. But I want you to understand that as we apply this in our life, that the consistency of what James is saying, and he does reveal to us that he's thinking about Job at the end of chapter 5, he is very concerned about what comes out of our mouth when we're dealing with one another. In James 4, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, you, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the middle of this admonition about our fighting and our worldliness, here we have an exposure to us that when we're having this kind of strife amongst one another, when we're dealing with one another, but the core of that is that we tend to be in that turmoil over things that are temporary. And sometimes it's relational and not necessarily physical. I know in parenting, I see it a lot when I am trying to use my children as an example of my own greatness in my own teaching. Instead of understanding that my purpose in raising my children is to disciple them for the service of the Lord, I want to make them into trophies for my own glory. And when that happens, whenever their sin is exposed or their weaknesses are exposed, in fear, I come down hard. Y'all get what I'm talking about here? We can do that in our marriages. We can do that in our ministries. We can do that in every single thing. And so what God is saying here is that one, you're not asking for the right things and you're not asking them for the right reasons because you have this passion in you that is warring against itself. This is what I was talking about before. That David is recognizing this and he is showing us this. We don't want to be like what is being said here by James, the enemy of God. We don't want our actions to be bringing forth the scorn and dishonor toward God's name amongst the enemies of God. He says in verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. This particular psalm is a psalm of humbling lament that is putting us in the right kind of posture before the Lord when we're in the midst of that hot-heartedness and that turmoil and difficulty when we're doing the very things that James is talking about and we're carrying on burdens and frustrations that are unnecessary because of what the Lord has done for us. And then in verse 11 it says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When we speak against each other in response to these warring passions inside of us, we not only are speaking against one another, our brothers and sisters, our family members, our church members, or other people in the Lord, we are taking the role of judge that doesn't belong to us. The judge who is able to save and the judge who is able to destroy. 
And then we have here a very similar feeling of what we see in Ecclesiastes and in Job. It says, come now, who you say today or tomorrow will go into such and such town and to spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As you boast in your own arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And then fast forwarding to James 5, verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. The same tone of wait upon the Lord until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. And behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is any one of you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any one of you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When we are in this place of patience and humility, in suffering, we are actually receiving the compassion of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord. We're seeing here that James says that in the story of the steadfastness of Job, we get to see the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the psalm, Psalm 39, that is a troubling psalm, is actually at the place that when we are in those moments, if we are holding on, like David is instructing us in this song, to hold on to him in this way, honestly and openly to the Lord, and if we are careful, like James says, not to use our words to bring not only dishonor to one another and dishonor to the judge who will save, then we can remember even when we fail, because it also says in James that there is grace, more grace, that we are in the midst of receiving compassion and mercy. And that if we're going to do anything, if we're going to say anything, we pray in suffering, we sing praise in our cheerfulness and gratitude, when we are sick, we go to those that the Lord has put in our lives, our elders. Think about what Jesus did when he was in the middle of cru being crucified. He held his tongue back and he honored, he actually preserved the glory of the state. 
by how he responded carefully and cautiously. And he did not let himself get into a wrangle of his tongue when he was given the accusations that were being placed upon him by the high priest. He submitted to covenant authority and structure in the middle of dying for our sins. And then if anything we're going to say to one another, we are to confess our sins to one another. To confess our weaknesses to one another. I think it's okay if we've gone to the Lord in this way, if we have sung the song of David, knowing that Jesus felt it on the cross for us. We can go to one another in confession that we are weak in these areas. That we strive with the things of the world. And when we do that, the Lord says, we will be healed. And so when we come to this table, we are coming to him. And when we come to this table, still in this age, and as we are taking this bread and this wine, and we are proclaiming his death until he returns, as James is telling us, we are hoping in that time, and we are confessing to one another that we need Jesus. That's why we're doing this together. That's why we're taking it as communion. We're telling each one of you, if you come up here, for your family or for your, the people on your row, whatever, whoever you're getting this communion. Basically, you're getting this stuff and you're, and you're serving it out to, to one another and you're saying, we need Jesus. We are in despair. We are in turmoil often. We are often letting our passions overwhelm us. We need Jesus. If that's you, come and eat because there's much grace in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.